Hello and welcome to this episode of Reading Between the Wines, a podcast for those of us who might not have read the book on the way to book club and want to learn a little bit more about wine on the way home. I'm your hostess, Winona Glass, and I'm joined by Keegan Moore. Your co-host. Yes. Keegan, today we are talking about The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls. This book came out in October of 2021. This is the second book of his that we have covered. Yes. He is also the author of A Gentleman in Moscow. Correct. And that was another book that was all about wine. We really liked that book. Yes. This book. whole foodie scene. Yes. This book had some foodie in it. They had this one grand meal that we'll talk about that was kind of like the reunion, the climax of the book. Everybody's back together. Yes. And then everything falls apart. So let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But did you enjoy this book? Yes. I definitely enjoyed A Gentleman in Moscow more. Okay, that's fair. But I feel like this brought me in earlier. Like, it took a while for A Gentleman in Moscow to, mm-hmm. like, and you're like, oh, okay. I feel the same way, except that I also felt like this one was a lot like A Gentleman in Moscow, and then it took me forever to get invested in the book. Right. It, I was probably a third of the way before it, into the book before I was like, Okay, now we're going somewhere. (laughs) The train has finally left the station, which will make sense in a minute. But I really wanted to like this book because I liked A Gentleman in Moscow so much. But I don't know. I can't explain it. Like, I don't know. There just wasn't as much... Like, action. Yes. There was a lot of things going on. And there was more than just a hotel involved, like A Gentleman in Moscow. (laughs) But it was another historical fiction book. Right. So... Been on a kick lately for historical fiction. Yes, we've done quite a few historical fictions for some reason or another. What did you think of like chapter 10 to 1? Did you find that interesting? Like you start in chapter 10 and you finish in chapter 1. So it's like a countdown. It it was a little weird. And yes, there were some interesting characters in here. There were some characters I didn't trust from the get-go. And like Duchess, I just didn't, I didn't like him at the beginning. Like, there was just something about him. I knew he was going to be trouble. Even near the end. <laughs> well, like, all the way up to the very end. Yeah. But then there's other characters that are endearing. Billy, I feel like, was the true hero of this book. I had him down as my unsung hero. Yes. And then, like, for true sung heroes, I had uh, Ulysses. Ulysses. Like, kind of like a side, yes. side character and Emmett as well. Okay. Ulysses Dixon. Yes, we'll talk about him. He was one of my favorite characters, too. Okay, so let's get started. So we're, the book opens with Emmett Watson getting driven home by the warden from Juvie. In Nebraska. We're going to Nebraska. Going to Nebraska from Salina, Kansas. And his dad has died. And he's essentially there to like, they're in debt. So he's selling off everything. He's there to pick up his brother. And they're going to figure out like what they're doing next. He has a car that is his prized possession that he bought. And... That's the only thing they're not selling. So they're going to jump in the car and head to Texas is what Emmett's plan is. But Billy has other ideas. Billy has found all of these postcards from his mom, from their mom, of the Lincoln Highway that end in San Francisco. So similar to another book. San Francisco, it's a happening place. It is. Even in the 1950s. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so this book is set over 10 days in the summer of 1954. And... So they get in the car and they end up not going to Texas because (laughs) while the warden is dropping off Emmett to the lawyer's office so that he can sell everything, we find out that two of his fellow inmates at Juvie had hidden in the warden's car 
and Duchess and Wooly. Just like, pop out of the trunk. Yeah. And then they're like, <laughs> oh, hey, buddy. So uh, we have a plan that we want you to be a part of. And we want to go to New York City. So <laughs> poor Emmett wants to go to Texas. Billy wants to go to San Francisco. And now Duchess and Wooly want to go to New York. And none of these sound like great plans. But... <laughs> This is why I don't trust Duchess and Wooly. Well, Wooly is, bless his heart, he's just kind of along for the ride. I mean, he's not the smartest. He's not the brightest bulb in the... Slightly troubled. Yeah. But came for money. Yes. Okay, Wooly. Yeah. Gentle soul. Yes. Gentle soul, but not the brightest bulb. And so they tell Emmett his plan. Like, they want to go to New York because he, Wooly, is owed $150,000 and it's in the safe and Wooly's family's summer house in upstate New York. And mm-hmm. they're going to go and steal it because he should have had it and all this crazy stuff. And Emmett's like, no, I tell you what, I'll take you to, to the bus station, to the bus station, You'll be on your way. You guys have at it. We're going to go to Texas. And Billy's like, you mean San Francisco. <laughs> it's like, OK, we'll figure that out. We got to get rid of these two yakus first. And so on the way, Duchess convinces Emmett to stop at an orphanage that he had come from. And so because he wants to feed the kids, because he had been at that orphanage, so he takes all the food that Sally, the neighbor, had made for them and delivers it to the orphanage. And while he's doing this, Everybody's out of the car. He steals the car with Wooly and they drive off. And so now Emmett and Billy are stuck in Nebraska with no no wheels. No wheels. So he calls Sally, who is not my favorite character in this book. I agree. Like every chapter that was like Sally Ransom I was like here we go just she's slightly overbearing she's very always complaining yes and and maybe it's because this is a guy author and it seems to be the only female character in the book Mm -hmm. but yeah I was like oh yeah so they call Sally Sally drives over to Omaha to get them and takes them to the train where the two of them have decided they're going to hop a train over to New York because they know that's where Duchess and Wooly are headed. In the meantime, small point, Emmett's dad had left him some money to start their new life in the wheel well in the back of the car. Duchess and Wooly find that. Yep. And Duchess... Start spending that. Duchess really does... He keeps saying he's going to pay it back. He keeps saying, like, I'm going to make it right. I never trusted him. But he really did. He kept a log of what he spent. So it seemed like legit, but I just didn't. I didn't trust him. The minute you steal your friend's, like, supposedly your best friend, like, the minute you steal his car because. Like, the only thing he has to his name. Correct. Yeah. You've just taken. He has nothing else. And, I mean, not that Duchess had anything either, but Duchess also. Shouldn't have been out of juvie. Right. And poor Wooly, like everybody's trying to convince Wooly just to turn himself back in. But Duchess doesn't have anybody that's looking out for his best interest. So he just is floundering, you know, and he's got Wooly to go along with him. So Wooly's like, sure, let's go steal some money. 
So anyway, so they're driving. Emmett and Billy are on the train. And this is when they meet a few of the more saucy characters. (laughs) So first we meet Pastor John. Pastor John tries to steal from Billy, not once, but twice. Because Billy has these coins in his back, in his backpack that Pastor John is convinced he needs. And because he's a pastor and Billy's only eight, he should give them to him with no problem. Like, just give them to me. And Billy's like, no, I'm not giving these to you. These are mine. And so Ulysses, like, drops in from out of nowhere (laughs) while this whole thing is happening and, like, saves Billy. And he is a large African-American man, World War II vet, disabled vet, and, like, he's a very imposing person. You know, like, just the way, like, his presence is just very imposing. Yes. He's a very large man, you know. So he and Pastor John have a little conversation. Doesn't go so well. He almost kills Pastor John. Eventually throws him off the train. Gives him the boot. Yeah. And we think we're done with Pastor John. Oh, no, 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 no. We'll see Pastor John again. So Ulysses now becomes like the surrogate father to Billy because he's overprotective of him. So when Emmett comes back, like, because Emmett was out trying to find food for them, when Emmett comes back, he and Ulysses almost get into it because they're both being protective of Billy. You know, Ulysses is trying to protect Billy from somebody else trying to take advantage of him. And Emmett just wants his brother. And he's like, I don't know who you are, but give me my brother. And so they have this little skirmish. They figure out they're on the same team. And Ulysses kind of becomes their guide to life on the train. Yeah. Which is great. I will say they had a little bit of luck, though. I mean, Emmett happens into that party on the train, and they think that he's, like, working there. And so he ends up (laughs) with all that food, which is great, but... It could have gone a different way. It could have gone a very different way. And I felt like it was really showed kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum of what was happening on the train, because here you had this, like luxury first class yeah. with like leftover cheese trays Just everywhere like full bottles of liquor excess <laughs> everywhere and then you've got these two kids who are have nothing and so it was definitely opposite opposite experiences on the train so they get to new york they go to this camp essentially that's there and ulysses helps them figure it out pastor john is there shows up yeah, and he tries to hurt Ulysses, and I really, really didn't like Pastor John. I mean, I felt like he gave pastors a bad name. <laughs> Just because you wear the dog collar doesn't make you a good person by any far stretch of the imagination. So we go, they find them. I mean, there's some crazy things that happen. This is a long book. <laughs> This is not a True book style you're going to, oh my gosh, this is not a book you're going to finish in a weekend. This is not a beach read. Buckle in. You're, it's going to take you a while. But they end up in New York, like some crazy things happen. Duchess is trying to find his dad. And so they end up at this like uh, circus, but the circus has like a back room <laughs> yeah. with all these Women of the night. (laughs) And apparently they all know Duchess because they all knew his father. And so Emmett gets locked in a room with one of the women. And then Wooly and Duchess and Billy go for a little jaunt. They're trying to get rid of Billy. So they go to the Empire State Building so that 
because his favorite author is there. There's these little tangents that we go down, these little rabbit holes where this whole, was it Professor Abernathy? Was that the the book writer? Yeah. Yes. So this whole Professor Abernathy, like they go and then he's telling, Billy's telling the professor his whole story about what has gone on. In true Billy detail. Exactly. <laughs> and he's fascinated by what's going on. He's like, take me to this Ulysses. And so they I must go, meet him. They go back to the camp. And again, the whole time, Duchess is trying to get rid of Billy. And now he's like picked up another person along the way. Poor Emmett still locked in the bedroom no. somewhere. <laughs> No idea what's going on. And again, this is in 1954. So somehow, miraculously, they all wind up at Wooly's sister's house for dinner. I can't even fathom how all of this happened. And there's so much chance that happens that they end up there. But she has made this phenomenal dinner. Duchess makes dinner. Oh, that's right. Because it's the dinner that they're going to make at the Italian restaurant. Yeah. That- <laughs> it only has like one seating and you have your table. And what was the name of that restaurant? Leonello's. Uh, Leonello's. So, yeah. So Duchess makes this amazing dinner that they would get like at a place like Leonello's. And he's talking about the wine and the food. And it's kind of his ideal restaurant. And somehow everyone, including Sally, ends up in New York at Willie's sister's house for this dinner. And I feel like this is like the climax of the book, really. I mean, because everything starts to fall apart after this. Yes. It really is kind of wine related. (laughs) Yes. They drink a lot of wine at this dinner. And that was the perfect night for everyone. That was the night that everybody had closure or... Fun, I'm not really sure how you put it, but at this point... Well, they've been going and going and going and getting separated and back together, and it's not like, oh, okay, like we can relax for an hour or two. A minute, because then the next morning, Duchess and Wooly are gone again, and they've gone to the house to go try to get this money, and Emmett and Billy follow because they don't think it's right, and Billy's like some sort of kid genius, you know? I mean, he definitely has... Obsessed with maps. Yes. <laughs> he definitely has his own unique personality, and he really shows his prowess when they get to the house. Here, Duchess is trying to get into the safe, and he's like hacking away at the safe and can't get into it. And Billy just like, oh, well, here's the code. Like, done. <laughs> but Willie has done something that's... Not good at this point. And so we're down Wooly. And then Emmett realizes that Duchess is just in it for himself. He just wants the money. So he does something that's... Emmett makes some decisions that put Duchess in a very odd situation because Billy also figures out that Duchess can't swim. So when Emmett figures out that he's trying to do all these selfish things, they put him in a boat and put all his money in the front of the boat and put him in the back of the boat and the boat has a hole in it. That's some rocks I think were thrown in there too. Yeah. For, yeah. you know. Yeah. So it was kind of, I was like, okay, this is dark and twisty, Emmett. Like I wasn't expecting that at all. And then Emmett and Sally and Billy 
start their trek down the Lincoln Highway to all the way from New York at the beginning. I know, which Billy is thrilled about because Billy thought they were only going to do half of the Lincoln Highway. (laughs) And then now they've ended up. They're going to traverse the whole thing. And the Lincoln Highway starts in Times Square in New York and goes all the way to San Francisco. And so they've now decided we're going to go to San Francisco and with... I will say it was kind of odd that Emmett and Billy didn't take all the money. They did split it three ways, essentially. But yeah, they essentially took the money out. I mean, they gave Duchess a choice. They did give Duchess a choice, but I don't know. I just was, I was like, okay, so you guys didn't take all the money, which I guess is admirable, but on the same, like, I felt like it was wasted because now there's just money money, everywhere. Cash flying around. At the lake. (laughs) Anyway, it was confusing. The ending was, I I don't know, it was a very dark ending for me for what I felt like the entire book was pretty lighthearted. And I mean, it it had some dark moments in it, like the whole Pastor John and Ulysses and and things like that. But for the most part, the book was just kind of about like these teenagers discovering life on their own. And then we had a really dark and twisty end. And I was like, was not expecting that. Yeah, it was a very, like, kind of violent scene, and then the whole boat mm-hmm. thing I thought was, yeah, really out of place. Yes, yeah. I'm not really sure what you're trying to accomplish there at the end, but the food looked good. I mean, it sounded good, the way that they described it, as far as the, the one meal. I just keep going back to the meal, because I feel like that was the bright spot of the whole book, was this kind of perfect evening that they had. And I'm glad that Duchess was able to give that to them, because throughout the book, he was not a good guy and he doesn't end on a good note either i mean he let willie die it seemed like he always had good intentions Mm -hmm. but then he was like on his own mission to prove something Mm -hmm. because throughout the book you hear why everybody ended up in juvie Mm -hmm. and some of it was you know it's like kids taking the blame or like you know like accidents happen that's why emmett was there essentially yeah, because Emmett threw one punch. The guy fell back, hit his, hit head, his head on a rock and dies. Yeah. And, I mean, Emmett's never gotten in a fight before or since because he made it a point that he wasn't going to get upset. Well, Billy was like, count to 10. Yes, I know. Again, Billy, like our unsung hero of the book. Definitely unsung hero. Mm-hmm. Little, bit, little old Billy. I yes. think I did I did warm up to Wooly, though. Yeah, I mean, Willie had a big heart. He really did. He was a good kid. He just, he hung with the wrong crowd. Yeah, I mean, when you're rolling with Duchess. And I think Duchess took advantage of him from that perspective because he knew that Willie would be kind of... Well, he had the money. Like, that was like... Oh, yeah. The point, right? But I think that Duchess knew that Willie would be faithful and loyal and not ever, like, turn him in or anything. He would be, he would always have his back. Exactly. And I don't feel like Duchess was the same. Duchess was going to turn on him the minute, first minute he could. So the big dinner. Yes. We're going back to the dinner because it was Italian dinner. You can't appreciate a good Italian dinner without a little vino rosso. Exactly. And so is this how we're going to tie into this book? Yes. So this was another book I debated on what wine to do. Because we had bubbles with the ladies of the night. They drank champagne. Right. I mean, we end up in New York. Yes. Which Finger Lakes is an awesome region. Mm-hmm. And then they they try to go to San Francisco. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. There's there's some wine there. Yep. And I mean, there's even wine along the way, as we've talked about. All 50 states have wine. Not good wine. 
Yeah, Pennsylvania. If you could find some Pennsylvania wine on the market, I couldn't. I looked into it. <laughs> it was this whole scene, like you said, that surrounded this good Italian dinner and fettuccine mio amore. Mm-hmm. And so Duchess is all about like you got to have the right kind of sauce from real tomatoes. Mm-hmm. So to make an authentico red sauce mm-hmm. from Italy, it's got to be made with San Marzano tomatoes. Oh. And those come from Campania. Mm-hmm. So I thought we should do a red wine from Campania. It sounds good. And we also didn't talk about in this big Italian dinner scene... Duchess's little cork pulling scheme. Yes. Oh, yes. And so everybody wants to try this trick. Oh, my goodness. They were pouring the wine out to do this. They weren't even drinking it. And Willie goes into the pantry and grabs grabs more bottles. And it turns out it's Chateau Margaux 1928, mm. which is 1855 classification, like first growth Bordeaux. And even in... What is this, 1954? This is like a well-aged wine. Mm -hmm. And they're dumping it down the sink. Like, no one thought to grab a pitcher (laughs) or anything. Put it in the blender. Do something. Something. Don't pour it down the drain. wine down the drain. It really hurt my heart. Yeah. I can understand. I mean, I would drink it now. I don't care if it's 100 (laughs) years old almost or what. You know, I'd give it a try. For sure. But yeah, we're going to drink some Alianico from Tarasi, which is a region in Campania. Fantastic. All right, so we're going to take a little break. Keegan's going to pour us a glass. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Okay, Keegan, you have poured us a bonus wine. So we have a red and a white that you've poured for us. Yes, Today, we are going to be drinking two wines from the same producer, Okay, Mastro Berardino, which is a historical, the most historical winery in this region. Wow. Okay. So a cellar selection of mine. Oh, so this is from Keegan's personal collection. Yes. So the red wine is a 2007 Radici mm-hmm. from Tarasi. Okay. And then wine number two is Greco de Tufo, 2019, and that's the white wine. Okay. So Greco de Tufo is the grape. It's a lighter shade of white that we've had, uh, but it looks delicious. I hope they're both delicious. Yes. But we didn't have any issues with the red, so it is a bonus wine. So we're down in Campania. Okay. And this is the birthplace of pizza. Mmm, yum. Mozzarella di bufala. Mmm, love me some buffalo mozzarella. So very food, food area. Mm-hmm. Food um, centric. Food centric. Mm-hmm. Going to start off with a little history. Get that part out of the way. <laughs> Falernian or Falernum was among the most prominent wines of the ancient world at the height of the Roman Empire in the first century. And it could have possibly been based on a Falangina grape, uh, but it was likely a blend. Could be dry, could be sweet. It was considered drinkable between 10 and 20 years old. Holy cow. And it was often aged until it was amber brown. So likely high in alcohol, it was often referred to as having some heat. 
I can imagine. But this was, you know, before we had figured out a lot of things about fermentation mm-hmm. and temperature control. All those things that make wine great. Yes, but it still had alcohol. So ultimately, the Romans were drinking it. The Romans referred to this region as Campania Felix, mm. which translates as happy country or happy land. When you've got that much wine, why wouldn't it be happy? Well, they also built thermal baths Ooh. on the slopes of extinct volcanoes. So you've got thermal baths, wine, and good food. Yeah. That and sounds amazing. I mean, this is along the Amalfi Coast, so it was also gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, pretty like, views. Like a little little playground for the Romans, if you will. I want to go to there. Yes. So another place I'd love to go. So the Flagrian Fields... This is Campi Flegri. Uh, that translates as fire fields. This was named by the Greeks to the area of a of highly active volcanoes on the opposite side of Naples. And this was thought to be the gateway to the underworld. Oh boy, that sounds very ominous. <laughs> yeah, so pretty sure if you drank enough of that brownish wine, you would probably start to see the (laughs) underworld. Maybe I'm being taken to the underworld. (laughs) But there were some sandy soils in this area in uh, Campi Flagri, which, as we have learned, protects vines from phylloxera, Mm -hmm. which destroyed uh, most of Italy's vines in the late 19th century. Mastro Berardino family worked with archaeologists and scientists Mm -hmm. in the late 1990s. This was a project called Villa de Misteri in the Roman trading town of Pompeii, which most of us studied in school. Mm-hmm. Um, but they analyzed grape seeds that were buried in the ash. Oh. And then they replanted with the found grape varieties. And they kind of call these the uh, archaeological varieties. But they propagated the genetic material from the ancient vines. Interesting. So... Unlike most places in the world, mm-hmm. the grapes that are growing there today were the grapes that were growing there from the beginning. Wow. Those are some old vines. Old varieties. They, well, you know, you have to replant eventually because age will get the best of us. Campania is among Italy's poorest and most rural areas. This tends to line up with the warmer climates because you can get higher yields and then eventually you go for quantity over quality. But this is a region that I would definitely seek out in the market. Mm-hmm. These are some killer wines coming from here. Hmm. As mentioned, like they've been growing here for a really long time. They're well adapted to the mm-hmm. area and they can be quite excellent wines. Alianico, which is the grape in Tarasi. So if you see Tarasi on a wine label... It doesn't have to be 100%, but this one is. But Alianico is often the last harvested grape in Italy. It requires a long, warm growing season. Mm-hmm. And this is like essential to tame the tannins. This is a wine that if you buy it upon release and just pop and pour, it's probably going to rip your face out. We don't want that. And dry your mouth out. No, we don't want that either. Yeah, not very friendly. So this is, this is why you aged this one? Exactly. Kind of mellows out the tannins. Okay. And this one's in 07. We're drinking it in 2023. So I'm excited. Yeah. I don't know how much longer it can go. Okay. I don't think it's going to get any better from here. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely going to be delicious. I can't wait. So a little geography. Naples. Mm -hmm. We've all heard of. That's the capital here. 
Mount Vesuvius, mm-hmm. also here. Stratovolcano, about 4,200 feet or 1,280 meters. Last erupted in 1944. And they are predicting an eruption within the next 500 years. That narrows it down. Yeah. So <laughs> be glad we don't live there. Mm-hmm. But there is a big eruption and 79 CE destroyed the cities of Herculaneum and Pompeii, and it buried them. And Pompeii was buried in 18 feet of volcanic ash, cinder, and rock. But because it was well-preserved, it allowed us to see the daily lives of the Romans. And they discovered over 200 thermopolia, or thermopolia which are wine bars, they uncovered, and that was in a city of 12,000 people. Holy cow, that's a lot of wine bars. So there's a wine bar for every 60 people. I love it. At all times, like if everybody was out. And I I don't know if that count included children, you know, so. (laughs) We don't know if that's over the age. Might have been one for every 50 or 40 people. As mentioned, it's along the Amalfi Coast, so beautiful. There's also the Neapolitan Apennines along the coast in the west, and then more mountains in the south. And the Calore River cuts Tarasi in half. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty hilly area. So because there's a volcano there, the soils are volcanic, mm-hmm. especially around Mount Vesuvius and Camp Flagri, which is around the Bay of Naples. And then there's three main types of soil here. So alluvial sediments, the mixture of volcanic rock, so porous limestone, or post-volcanic clay, and then limestone. So we're going to start talking about the grapes first and then talk about the regions. So the number one grape, most notable and well-known, is Alianico, which is in our glass. So Alianico is most notably in Alianico del Talberno and mm-hmm. Tarasi, and we're drinking the Tarasi. So in our glass mm-hmm. is Mastro Berardino's Radici, which means roots. So we're drinking the red first. Yeah. Okay. Now you it told us ahead of time that we should probably have some food prepped for this one. Well, I was a little concerned about mm-hmm. how tannic it would be. Okay. But we'll see how mellow it is. So we've got some pasta with red sauce, just in case we need it. And to tie it in with a book, you know, this was the big Italian meal. I mean, why not? Let's relive that whole moment. We didn't have a guy that just got a juvie cook it for us, but well, yeah. I'm okay with that. No, you had somebody like me who, bless your heart, like, <laughs> it's a good thing it came in a bag. But they had fettuccine amore, and we're having ravioli Winona. Yes. <laughs> the wine is very perfumed. I get lots of dried fruit, maybe uh, dried plums, mm-hmm. some herbal notes, kind of some tobacco leaf. <laughs> uh huh. Should drink the wine already. Maybe some cigar box too. I got the cigar box. Lots of non fruit aromas, mm-hmm. which is what happens as a wine ages. Okay. So then on the palate, the acid is still there. I, I did feel a little bit like it wanted to rip my face off. I think the tans are pretty smooth, though. Like, imagine drinking this, you know, 15 years ago. No. <laughs> it's pretty well integrated. It seemed like it had high alcohol to me. Mm-hmm. It's got 14% on the bottle. I might have called it like 14 and a half. But sometimes when a, a wine ages, 
certain parts of the wine structure will stick out. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the acid is still kind of holding the holding the whole wine together, I think. So obviously this would go well with red sauce. I just took a bite of the ravioli with the wine and it definitely did change the how bold it was. It it mellowed oh, it a yes. whole lot more. Mm-hmm. But the Italians know best, right? It's the like, Italians know how to eat they, and drink. So they do make the wine for the food. They're pairing that together very well. And the acid from the tomato sauce and the acid from the wine is they're good friends. Pretty excellent. So we're on our 10th generation here at the winery. Antonio Mastro Berardino decided in post-World War II era to champion all the indigenous varieties in this region. And at the time, Alianico had been widely replaced by Trebbiano and Sangiovese, mm-hmm. which can grow a lot in quantity. And Sangiovese is another wine that I think needs food. Absolutely. But grown in a lot of other places in Italy. But for a while, Mastro Berardino was the only producer to bottle Tarassi instead of selling it off as bulk wine. Oh, okay. But he was a true champion to this region Mm -hmm. and to the indigenous varieties that are here. I kind of mentioned this before, but uh, Alianico is an old grape. This grape is so old. How old is it? We don't know. We don't know for sure how old it is. DNA profiling cannot find any parentage, and it's shown it's not closely related to any modern Greek grape varieties. So it's most likely an ancient grape from southern Italy. Hmm. It's closely related to other varieties within the region and Basilicata, which is another region in Italy down here. So this grape typically does best in volcanic soils on steep slopes. Another red grape in this region is Pidioroso, which translates as red foot, which I guess is named after the tawny color of its stems. And a lot of it is found on the Vesuvian Hills and then Campi Flegri. This grape was referenced by Pliny the Elder. Mm-hmm. There's less than 700 hectares, but around 1,700 acres under vine. And this grape is much lighter bodied, often described as bright and fresh and herbal mm-hmm. and more acidic. So it's often blended in with Alianico or other grapes down here. Those are the two main reds. Then I want to talk about the whites. Okie dokie. So the top three are Fiano, Greco, and Falangina. And Greco is the one that we have, correct? Yes. Okay. Fiano was nearly extinct until Antonio Mastro Berardino advocated for it. Mm-hmm. His first vintage in 1945 yielded 30 bottles. Oh, that's... Not cases, that's bottles. Apparently, it was pretty widespread around the region until our favorite root louse came along. Phylloxera. Phylloxera, again, showing up, ruining things, early 20th century. Nobody wants to invite phylloxera to a party, (laughs) and they keep showing up. (laughs) Everywhere. Literally, traveled the world. Total plantings as of 2010 was around 1,400 hectares or 3,400 acres. There's also a good chunk in Australia. This wine tends to have some floral and almond notes and can be herbaceous. It also tends to be more full-bodied, and sometimes it's described as having a waxy texture. So the second white grape I want to talk about is Greco, which is the other wine in our glass. Excellent. 
So Greco, like Alianico, grows best on volcanic hills. This is inland of Mount Vesuvius often. This is a thicker-skinned grape, which makes it more powerful. And it's it's a wine that's called a white wine for red wine drinkers because it's known for its structure. It's also supposed to have great minerality and intensity and sometimes a little bit of smokiness. Well, I'll be the judge of if it's a, a white wine for the red wine drinker. I can envision some smokiness in here, but I'm not sure I would call it smoky. Mm-hmm. It's good, though. It reminds me of a Roussin. It doesn't want to rip my face off like the red did. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, it definitely has some acid, though. Moderate alcohol. Pretty citrusy. I would definitely call it minerally. Maybe a little bit salty, even. Same. I'm a little salty as well. And then the third main white wine grape is Falangina. This is Campania's signature white wine grape. It is the most planted white grape in Campania. Also one of the oldest. Mm -hmm. Around 3,000 hectares or 7,500 acres as of 2010. This is another wine that can maybe be described as salty, sometimes smoky, kind of savory. But it can also be tropical with some stone fruits or fresh. Because it's grown, there's a lot of different variation within it. So if you're going to try out a white wine from this area, Falangina is maybe the least safest bet just because it's the most grown. But if you see the Greco de Tufo, definitely check that out. So does the Greco like food like the red wine does? I think almost every wine in Italy Likes, likes food. food. Well, that's fair. I Most mean, Italians like their food, so <laughs> I, why wouldn't the wine like the food? But too? mainly because of the acidity. This one you might get away with drinking early on in the day without food, mm -hmm. but I think it has enough acidity to hold up to a, like a lot of lighter meals, even salads. The white wine definitely has some heft to it. The Greco. I can see why they call it a red wine drinker's white wine. Unctuous per se. Ooh, big word. Yes, that's our word of the day. And then honorable mention for white wine grapes, Cota de Volpe. It translates to tail of the fox because the Romans thought the grape clusters that were hanging from the vines, mm -hmm. it looked like a fox's tail. Oh, really? Cool little story, right? It's generally fruitier mm -hmm. and a little bit spicy, but softer, so less acid. And it often shows up in blends. So we've talked about the grapes. Yes. Now we're going to talk about where you can find them. Okay. Have we talked about DOC and DOCG? Mm -hmm. Familiar with those? Yep. Tarasi, which is where our red wine is from, mm -hmm. covers around 350 hectares or 870 acres. These require a minimum of three years aging with at least one year in wood. And then there's also a reserva, which is a minimum of four years with at least a year and a half in wood. And the Tarasis are the most structured and age-worthy of all the Alianicos that there are. The other main red DOCG is Alianico del Talberno, mm -hmm. around 75 hectares or 185 acres of plantings. These have to be 100% Alianico. Because of the area, it's around Mount Taberno, they generally get more summer rain, and it's a little cooler there. Mm -hmm. And so how does that affect the grape? The temperature? And the summer rain. Summer rain will cool the grapes down mm -hmm. and slows down the maturation process of the grapes, which tends to lead to more acidity and lighter body. So then you get immature grapes. 
or you just have to let them stay on the vine longer and then you're dealing with the rain in the fall fall when it's harvest mm-hmm. and that can like you know water down the grapes and that's right. a different issue and then there's a couple white DOCGs the lovely Greco de Tufo so definitely look for this producer if you can find it there's around 670 hectares or 1650 acres of plantings it's also made into a sparkling wine oh a traditional method and this is north of fiano di avellino and it's mostly volcanic tuff here mm-hmm. as we kind of talked about before it's the greek grape of tufo soil and that's what the romans called this porous limestone that is here very minerally very delicious mm-hmm then the other white DOCG is Fiano di Avellino, around 435 hectares or 1,100 acres of plantings, centered around the town of Avellino. So this is in the west side of Tarassi. This was kind of recently elevated to DOCG from just a DOC in mm-hmm. 2003. So Italian food, safe to eat with both of these wines. Oh, yeah. I mean... The heartier, the better. The more pasta, the better. But also, like you'd mentioned, we could do salad with the white. We could definitely. I mean, pizza grows here, so I pizza love red sauce. Anything that says pizza grows here, <laughs> I I will go. I, I I want to go to there just to be in the pizza fields of yes. the Amalfi Coast. But also, like buffalo mozzarella. Would oh my be gosh, delicious with the white wine. Yes, or the red wine. To be honest. Buffalo mozzarella, you could just eat. Just straight. I mean. Nothing. You can mainline it and be okay. (laughs) So good. Olive oil and balsamic really get it done. But, you Mm -hmm. know, some quick honorable mentions. Campy Flagri DOC is Naples' own DOC. Mostly Falangina there. Erpina DOC. They make white and red. Then there's wine from the Amalfi Coast. Costa del Malfi, mostly Falangina dominant white wines. Ischia is an island. There's only about 60 hectares or 150 acres of vineyards there. I would love to go though. It's about an hour and a half ferry ride from Naples. Oh, really? Historically important, back to the 8th century BC, was uh, among the first permanent settlements of Romans, mostly based on some more. Indigenous white grapes that we haven't discussed, Forastera and Bianchella. No links to other known varieties. And if you can see in the market, Dambria, D apostrophe A M B R A, is definitely a producer to seek out. Then a fun little story. I'm going to tie in some religion here. Oh, we like that. <laughs> Vesuvio, D O C. There is uh, red and white, La Crema Christi, so La Crema Christi Bianco. There's also La Crema Christi Spumanti, rosé and red, all the things. All made to drink young, preferably chilled. So there is a legend, and I've heard a couple different stories about La Crema Christi. This is based on the legend about the angel Lucifer. Is he really an angel? I didn't think Lucifer was an angel. Well, Lucifer was an angel, and then he was banished. And he had a falling out. Stole a piece of heaven, Mm -hmm. which fell into the Gulf of Naples. Oh. And Christ wept. And where his tears fell 
vines sprung up. Oh my. And so So we're drinking That is the legend. So we're drinking the tears of God. No, that's Lacrima Christi. Oh. Which is also made by this producer. So seek it out. Red, white. I is feel like all that's, I've seen. Yeah, that's the way we need that we should have been drinking Lacrima Christi as well for, you know, the tears of God. Should have gone for all three. Right? <laughs> uh, the white is based on the Cota de Volpe, the tail of the fox. The better ones have more of that, but it has to be at least 35% Cota de Volpe with some other grapes blended in. Did you like both of the wines? I did. I did like both the wines. I did like the red with the food. Okay. And I did like the white. I tried it with the food as well, and it complemented it. Kind of worked with tomato sauce? It, yes. I do feel like this one is more, like you said, a salad, fettuccine, maybe... Just a whole plate of cheese. Hmm. Oh, the whole plate of cheese or like a linguine with butter sauce and mussels and clams, things okay, like that. Some, like a, some unami, like some yes. mushrooms in there maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. More of a, a lighter fare with the white, but with the red, I feel like it would have held up with pizza, with all kinds of the spaghetti and marinara or any kind of lasagna even. So Keegan, did we decant this wine? Yes, I decanted this wine about 10 hours ago. And why did we decant it for so long? I was quite concerned that it wasn't going to mellow out mm -hmm. and it was going to rip our faces off. It, it did That's not. That's also kind of why I wanted to have some food alongside it, just in case. It probably doesn't need 10 hours. Mm -hmm. We just didn't get to it. But you could leave it for six hours or you could... Open it the night before if you wanted to have it at a dinner party at your house mm -hmm. and then decant it the next day and it'd probably be okay. What temperature would you drink this wine at? So around 64 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit or around 18 degrees Celsius. I think a standard Bordeaux glass or any stemmed glass would be preferred here. Mm -hmm. I think this wine is full of flavor in part because of the grape itself, but also they ferment the wine for around 25 days mm. um, at a little cooler temperature than average, but still it's like a pretty long time. Mm -hmm. And then this wine is aged in French oak barriques and Slavonian oak barrels for about two years. And as stated, it needs time, preferably decades and then it's delicious. It needs time to mature, and then it needs time to decant. And open up. Yes, ma'am. Okay. All right. We've 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 talked a lot about tomato sauce. I think this would also go well with like a chili. Oh, yeah? Or okay. like a beef stew. It's a fall a fall wine. Fall wine. That, mm -hmm. That'd be a good time. Um, and for the vegetarians, I think it would, it would go well with almost anything with mushrooms in it. Mm-hmm. I feel like a mushroom risotto would go mushroom really well. Mushroom risotto, mm -hmm. yes. Lentils, I think tempeh too. Okay. If you're trying to go that route, like a lot of soy-based things would go well with this, especially with the like tertiary notes we're getting from how old it is. Mm -hmm. I got this wine online in 2019 for around $40. So if you're not necessarily looking to age it or don't have the space to or the patience to, it's not unreasonably priced to find an aged wine on the secondary market, especially from the better known producers. So I found this 2007. It was a pretty good year. We both think it's delicious. Mm -hmm. I think it, like I said, it would last a little bit longer, but it is delicious right now. 
What are some secondary markets that you have found that have been noteworthy or legitimate? So we're completely unsponsored here. Yes, we are. If anybody wants to reach out. I mean, if you want to sponsor us, we will totally plug you. But right now we are unplugged. My personal go-to is WineBid. Okay. WineBid.com. They're all certified by people. They're supposed to come from quality storage. Another starting point website is wine-searcher.com. Okay. And you can put that in and just make sure you filter for your state and it'll show everybody that has it who will ship to you. So you can see prices from local places and places maybe out of California if they can ship to you. So winebid.com and then wine-searcher.com. Yes. And then another favorite among wine aficionados is WTSO.com. Wine till sold out. WTSO. WTSO. But you kind of have to like always be checking your email because it's wines till they're sold out. Till they're gone. Yeah. Okay. Which is the good ones are gone that day. So for some of us who are not as savvy. These are good ways for us to start if we're trying to get some older wines that we want to serve. Yeah. Drink sooner. now yeah. and not have to age on Correct. your own. Yeah. Wine bit is kind of like eBay. Mm-hmm. So it's like a weekly auction that ends on Sundays, but they also have like a buy now offering for a lot of the wines as well. Interesting. I almost feel like you can't go wrong with a 15 or $20 bottle of white wine from Italy, especially if you don't know the grape. Right. You've never heard of it? It's probably delicious. That's why you need to buy it. And if it's got Greco in it, I mean, that's even better. Yes. Good stuff. So we've talked a lot about the Lincoln Highway today, and we've drank some fantastic Italian wines from the Italian dinner Duchess cooked for them, kind of the pinnacle of the book. If you want to learn more about the book we read or the wines we drank, please head over to readingbetweenthewines.blog. We'd like to give a huge shout out to our Patreon subscribers. You keep us in wine and books, and for that we are very grateful. And we look forward to meeting you once again on the next podcast where we will discuss more books and more wine. Yes. So until we meet again, always keep your glass half full. Cheers. Cheers.